Alain Mazzulli has been exploring supernatural phenomena. He's very interested in ancient historical texts. He's been following the UFO phenomenon. He's written 13 books and has been a producer for 27 films. And he believes we are on the verge of a great UFO deception. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, welcome, L.A., to Exopolitics Today. It's uh, The honor is all mine, sir. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, you know, you've been very prodigious. I mean, you've uh, authored 13 books and 27 films on this phenomenon. So so what got you going? What got you interested in this whole supernatural UFO genre? I was um, I was 12 years old when I, I saw my first UFO. Um, I've seen three. And uh, I'll never forget this. I was 12 years old. I was at Boy Scout camp, uh, Rising Sun, Maryland, Camp Horseshoe. And uh, there were four, four boys and we're walking up this sort of a secret trail. It's a shortcut to get back to the, uh, the scout camp because we're 12 year old boys and we're really hungry. So we're walking on this thing and we're hopping all these rocks like this. And I'm the last boy in the line. And the lead guy goes, oh, my gosh, what's that? And the other two guys go, wow, what is that? And I go, what are you guys looking at? And they go, I go, where is this? And they point to my right. And I look up, and there in the sky, I always have this little prop here, is the classic silver disc. I mean, just the classic silver disc. And it's about that big. Um, and the sunlight is glinting off of it. And we looked at this thing for maybe 25 seconds, 20, 25 seconds. And then, in typical UFO fashion, it just does this. And gone. I mean, literally in a blink of an eye. Or as David Faber says, like a bullet out of a gun. I mean, just just gone we go running back to boy scout camp we saw a flying saucer we saw a ufo all the kids are gathered around us the scout masters are gathered and we're telling the story what did it look like it was a silver disc and the sun glinted off of it and then it just disappeared and we're all excited well that was lunch by five o'clock dinner the other three boys denied that they had ever seen anything because of the ridicule because of the derision because of the name calling and I refused to back down. I guess I'm patting myself on the back here, but I refused to back down and just went, I know what I saw. You know, the other three guys, they can say what they want, but I know what I, I can, it's funny. And I know you, I know you know exactly where I'm going with this. Once you see one, that's it. And I can run that clip in my head, you know, ad infinitum over and over there. I mean, it's the same thing. It's like a little home movie in your head. Once you see one like that, that's it. it. It's in there forever. So that was like my first um, foyer into uh, the whole ufology stuff. I mean, I read Von Daniken's book. Remember, I'm like 12 and then 16, 18. And that's when Von Daniken publishes. And I'm reading all this stuff. And, um, you know, I, I'm as an adult now, I've been to Saxibaman and Machu Picchu, a lot of these same places that were in the book. So it's really kind of cool to, you know, like 40 years, 50 years later, here I am in Machu Picchu. Here I am at Saxe Waman. Here I am in Oyotantambo, uh, Teotihuacan, Chaco Canyon. I mean, I've been all, not all over the world, but I've been in a lot of places and uh, investigating and filming. So there's always been this quest 
there's a show I do on YouTube. It's it's um, we call it "I'm a Trail of a Nephilim," and and the byline for that is there is a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world, and that's why we're on the trail. So I mean, that's what that's what drives me because I know we're being lied to constantly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's a powerful motivation having that direct personal experience. So I'm I'm very interested. You mentioned. Uh, very quickly, uh, Robert Schock. I mean, he's known for having done th that investigation of, of the Sphinx, proving that it its age is much, much older and it kind Absolutely. of dates to this pre-flood era. So, I mean, mm -hmm. how did you meet with him? What, what role did he play in kind of stimulating you into this prodigious production of books and films? Well, I, we'd, we were already into that and we showed up at a conference. I think it was up in... Um, it was in Minnesota, I'm pretty sure, it's years ago. And, you know, we're, we got there early and we're loading up all these books and there's Robert Chalk. And it's like, hi, I introduce, you know, introductions are passed around and, and he helps us carry the books up to our table. It's unbelievable. So, you know, we were, we were talking shop at that point. And I had, I, I, it was the first time I met him, but I had seen, seen him on Ancient Aliens and the History Channel and other stuff. And, and I completely agree with his assessment. Um, that the Sphinx is much older as well as, as the pyramid. Khufu had nothing to do with it, the Great Pyramid, in my opinion. Absolutely nothing. Um, and the fact that no one even knew it was eight eight sides until they flew over it in World War II, you know, it's like nobody ever mentions that. So, I mean, to actually, to actually construct something like that with the precision which the Great Pyramid is constructed with, um, looking at the Sphinx and... We're, we're looking at a hidden history. We're looking at something that happened in the far distant past, something cataclysmic occurred. And um, was, the, was the Great Pyramid an, an energy source? In my opinion, more than likely it was. Um, it, it, it may have powered, it may have lit up the grid in the ancient world, that's conjecture, but it certainly wasn't a tomb of, of Khufu. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I mean, the sarcophagus in, in the king's chamber has no lid. There's not a hieroglyphic in the place except above the king's chamber. And I believe that's a forgery where it says, you know, Khufu and the whole deal. But what, what's enigmatic and, you know, I, we should get Zowie Hawass on this show. And, and the three of us can just ask Zowie a real simple question. Zowie, you know, what, let's not talk about the blocks, the sand ramps. You know, how great the Egyptians are. Just answer me this. <clears throat> how do you cut red granite and move it in the Neolithic? Just show me that. How do, you, how do you cut the red granite from Aswan, which is 500 miles away, and bring that red granite block, which are the size of freight cars, and set them above the king's chamber? <clears throat> Let's just start there. And if you have no answer to that, and you can't demonstrate that, because a copper chisel was not going to cut red granite. You know, I don't care how much incense you burn to raw, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So we're looking at something else that's been obfuscated from the peoples of the world. But Zowie's a spokesman, with all due respect to Mr. Hawass. I mean, he knows a lot. But when it comes to, you know, talking about the Great Pyramid, I think he does a, a great injustice. Well, I know that uh, you, I believe your first book was uh, the first in this tr trilogy, the, the Nephilim trilogy of books, uh, 1999. And you portrayed this 
issue or what you knew of uh, giants or the Nephilim in terms of this uh, fiction based on facts or yeah so at that time 1999 and and up until 2004 you write this trilogy so what inspired you to write that trilogy and you i mean you had ufo experiences so what what drove you there's a book um called the omega conspiracy i have it on my desk here because it's this is the book that changed my life it's by my mentor dr ide thomas and later on when it was republished i got to write the forward to it go figure so um, I had been, I mean, that book literally changed my life, The Omega Conspiracy, because what he was talking about in that book, what that there was, there were giants on the earth. There were giants on the earth. And some of these giants were 12, 14, 16 feet tall. And there's ancient prophetic texts which talk about the giants that roam the earth. And, and so the idea, and this is where, you know, in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, Indiana, I'm, I'm sure you guys know, know that when he when he drives the motorcycle into the library and he and he looks at the guy studying the books and he goes, "You got to get out of a library," and and that's true. You got to get out of a library. You know, you got to get out and see some of these sites and look at the evidence and and do your own research. And you know, yeah, the library is great. It's a, it's a foundation, but there's nothing like you know going to Catalina Island and looking at photographs from 1911 and 19 or, or 1919 and 1921. And there, uh, you know, is, let me show you the photograph here, which yours truly discovered years ago, which wound up in the, um, yeah, that's a ticket. Yeah, here it is. Return to Catalina. So this is, this is the, the picture that I discovered in the archives right there. That's the picture. And it shows Ralph Glidden, 1919. He's employed at this time by the Hay Museum. In front of him is a really big guy, okay? Really big. He's about nine feet tall. And, and that's, that's what I mean. You, you know, you get out and you start doing some research, and lo and behold, these things start to, to come to light. So when we go back to the, um, to the museum, I think it's like right in here. Hold on, let me see if I can find it. The museum does this. There's the picture. They cropped the giant out of the picture. So, of course, we filmed all that, and that went viral. So, you know, being, being on the trail, this has been like a lifelong quest um, since I was a kid. My paradigm has shifted since I was a kid. But it's, it's the, same, the same curiosity that, that drives me to create these films, create these books. Um, there were giants here. There's no doubt about it. Um, we have evidence of it. Uh, that one picture that I just showed you from the Catalina Museum, and then they then they redact the giant out of the picture. Why would they do that? Why why you know? Can you imagine if if you put if you put on the marquee at the Catalina Island Museum, come see the authentic pictures of the Catalina Island giant? The line would be around the block, right? But they don't do that. Why don't they do that? Why are they so? What, what are they so afraid of? I just I did a show today on the elongated skulls it was an archaeological report about this this group of, of ancient skulls found in Japan and they're saying well all these things were cranial you know cradle headboarded uh, cranial deformation and we're not, we're not saying that that didn't exist we know that but in our film on the DNA evidence and we're one of the few people that have ever gone down to Paracas Peru we took 56 samples when you look at the orbits they're 
they're about 25 to 30 percent larger than a normal human being. There's an absence of a sagittal suture. There's no sagittal suture, which should be here. It's not there. It doesn't exist. But the smoking gun, and this is the work of our anthropologists on our team, is the placement of the foramen magnum. That's the foramen magnum right there. Now, this is clay that was put in when Joe Taylor did the mold to put a dowel in there. So, but that foramen magnum should be here. Let me, let me get a pen. It's easier. That foramen magnum should be here in the center of the skull. You can't reposition the foramen magnum through cranial deformation. You can't do that. You can't move it. The foramen magnum is set in utero when, when this thing is in, is in the womb. It should be here to balance the skull. And the paraca skulls, not all of them, because some of them are cradle headboarded. You can see this, and it's all the way to the occipital plate, all the way to the rear of the skull. And, you know, hats off to Brian Forrester, who took Senior Juan's information in the Paracas Museum and broadcast it on YouTube. Someone sent that to me, and voila, we were, I was writing to Brian, and next thing you know, we're down in Paracas. But our, our team is, is, um, is one of the few teams. There's another one apparently from Gaia, according to Brian, that went down, and they took samples. And what, what's amazing is the samples that we took showed that these many of them, not all, but many of them, have a Middle Eastern origin. And that rewrites history. Of course, the academics say, well, it really doesn't rewrite history because everything's contaminated. But we put our own DNA samples in, and that was tested in the lab. So if it was contaminated, why didn't we get nuclear DNA? We had one contamination, and we threw it out. Not all the skulls, but many of them. Out of the 56, about 28 sequenced. Out of the 28 that sequenced, we had um, a preponderance of them showing a Middle Eastern, Black Sea, Eastern European haplogroup. Haplogroup comes from the, um, the mitochondrial DNA, the female line, which gives you the area which the, where these guys came from. One skull came back to Druze population, which is you know smack dab in the middle of what is now Israel. So it was, it was fascinating you know, to kind of do all this. And, and I mean, that's what drives me because there's this hidden history and it, it, sur it surrounds us. It's all around us. Well, I know you've done a lot of field work and uh, I just had a look at your, the first book on the, on the trail of the Nephilim image. And I think, I mean, there's a lot of kind of field work that you've done and you mentioned Peru and Paracas. I've been to Peru and, and I've seen uh, the Paracas skulls there. So anyone can see, but you, you were able to do some DNA testing. So yeah, that, um, that book series on, on the trail of the Nephilim. I mean, that's very impressive in terms of the, the research that's in Thank it, you. confirming the existence of these giants and, uh, yeah, you've already mentioned the DNA so uh, of the Paracas and Peru. So why is Peru in particular so important? I mean, recently Peru's been in the news because of these uh, aliens that were sighted near some Amazonian village. Um, right. So, yeah, why Peru? Why is that central to this whole phenomenon? Well, it's, it's not only Peru. I mean, they, they're everywhere. But what's interesting about Peru 
is that you can still go into these private museums and see artifacts like this, where in this country you can't see anything. You know, in the United States of America, I mean, you can't, they don't show anything about anything. You know, what happened to those giants that were dug up in the late, you know, 19th century? Oh, there were no giants. Well, the newspaper said that there were giants. This medical doctor came on the record and talked about the giants. What happened to them? Well, they were just trying to sell papers, and the doctor really couldn't measure, and it really wasn't a 12-footer. Nonsense. You know, why can't we see the pictures? Why is everything, you know, hidden away from the American people, from the peoples of the world? So Peru has this, this openness, which we don't have here. So you can go to the museums, <clears throat> and you can see things. However, the gold mummies, the golden mummies that were in uh, the gold museum in, in, um, in Lima, they vanished. They vanished. There was one picture that we were able to find. Peru is a big part because it's one of the few places you can go and still, um, still explore, still look for things. Um, not they didn't get everything. Well, it's the same thing in the, in America. I mean, they didn't get everything here. There's stuff, but every time we get close, something happens. So it's just it's a different world in Peru. In Paracas, nobody cared about Paracas. I mean, no, no, who cares about Paracas? When I went down there in 2013, it was a two-lane road to Paracas. That's all changed. Now it's a four-lane highway. And now they've got very large hotels. When I got down there in 2013, the hotels were just breaking ground, just under construction. All that's changed. So it's it's a different different paradigm. And the museum, you know, after Senior Juan died, um, that went downhill very quickly. But there are private museums. Brian Forrester uh, took us to one that was damaged in the earthquake. And there were there were just mummies in, you know, and, and we offered. We said, look, let us do DNA testing on this thing. And uh, they were under contract already, so that didn't happen. But there are, then you get the Wakaros, the grave robbers. And they're still actively employed. In fact, it was this one guy, Senior Salvador. He passed away during COVID. So this guy was a, a minister by day. He was he was a you know collared minister, but by night he was a Wukaro. So the joke between Brian and myself was, you know, by day he buries him and by night he digs him up again. And that that's kind of what was going on. And Senior Salvador took us to places um, in the Chongos Necropolis and other places where we found one of the most remarkable places was um, there's pictures of it in the book was we went to this it was a killing field. That's the only way I can describe it. And you had to hike up this hill and now it's a high place and you're looking over a plateau and in the distance is the Pacific ocean. So the view was spectacular. There was a mass grave there and the skulls were all hit with blunt force trauma to the left side. So if I if I have a war club in my right hand and I smash your skull right here, there were we counted 60 skulls that we discovered that were completely, you know, smashed in, destroyed, not one funerary object, not one. Not one. Nothing was there. <clears throat> it, it was the bones, it was a mass grave. It was an execution site. And every skull there was elongated. Every skull was a Paracas skull. So what I find interesting is that whoever came into that area, we don't know who killed them. We, it's, it's conjecture. 
Was it the worry? Could be. Um, we just don't know. But the Paracas population just disappears. And again, I've been to a lot of different places, and I hear that this scenario is repeated over and over and over again. In, in America, in Chaco Canyon, in Teotihuacan, with the Teotihuacanos, they even know what they call themselves. In places like Karnak, France, uh, Stonehenge, England, Manga, Spain, it's always the same thing. Well, these people did this, but they just vanished somehow. And, 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 and the latest one is all because of climate change. It's like, really, how convenient is that, right? And they just, they just disappear. So let me get this straight. You're going to build Teotihuacan, which that pyramid in Teotihuacan, the, the so-called Pyramid of the Sun, when no one knows what they called it. So they just make up names. So we'll just call it, for, for the sake of discussion, the Pyramid of the Sun. And um, the base of that pyramid is larger than, the, than Giza, than the Pyramid of Giza. It's not as high as Giza, but it's larger. So, <coughs> excuse me, you construct that, this, the plaza, the way of the dead, the pyramid of the moon, all these structures and this whole civilization, then you just disappear. Then you and, and the archaeologists go, well, they must have been because of climate change and they just, you know, um, the, the food resources weren't able to feed the people. And so they just assimilated into the indigenous population. But we don't hear that. The indigenous population doesn't tell us anything about that. These, whoever they were, they just vanish. And I hear this over and over and over again, specifically in the Americas, in Ohio, with the so-called Hopewell and the Adena. Well, they just assimilated into the Native American populace that was here. But the Native Americans have nothing in the oral tradition that says 2,000 years ago, a, a wandering group of, of nomads who were half starved to death asked to join our tribe. It's not there. It's not there in the oral tradition. So what, who's, who's making stuff up here? Yeah, well, uh, there's definitely there's a cover-up underway. And I, I know there were dozens, even hundreds, of uh, news newspaper reports in the 1800s, early yeah. 1900s, about the discovery of giants, uh, roughly 10 feet tall, six fingers and toes, double rows of teeth, and uh, you know, lots of newspaper stories. And there's one that I just wanted to show you, share now. You know, that's from the New York Times. And that, and that describes this um, in Mexico, a, a, a cave containing 200 skeletons of men eight feet in height. So, you know, you, I mean, yeah, this seems to be the pattern that you just mentioned. So, yeah, what, what is going on with all of these um, giants being discovered in the Americas and being covered up? Who's behind that? Well, it's, it's definitely the Smithsonian, uh, but it's also, and I might ruffle some feathers here, um, the Darwinian paradigm came into vogue, you know, mid-19th century, roughly. And so Darwinism runs the scientific community and academia. I mean, let's face it. Darwinism is the paradigm in which the scientific community and the academic community, that's, that's their paradigm. And that's okay. People, look, people have the right to believe whatever they want to believe. And, and that's fine. And, you know, it's like, if you want to believe in Darwinism, go for it. That's great. But we know from Watson, and I've lectured on this, Watson and Crick discovered the deoxyribonucleic double helix spiral of life. They discovered it. It was always there. Darwin didn't know about it, but Watson and Crick did. Crick was a vexed man. 
And he was a vexed man because he realized the complexity of the DNA molecular structure, um, the double helix of life, that just didn't happen by accident falling out of a tree someplace. You know, and, and now we know that everything on this planet that's alive has a DNA structure to it, a DNA coding to it. So <clears throat> when Ben Stein and his film Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, sits down with Richard Dawkins, which is a really great clip to watch if you've never seen it, and says, well, where does life come from? And Dawkins says, well, no one knows. And he's right, nobody does know. And there's different theories. You can hold a different worldviews, but nobody knows. You can't prove it. And and Stein goes, well, where do you how do you think it happened? And Dawkins goes, well, it happened when the first self-replicating molecule came into existence. And Stein goes, well, how do you think that happens? And at this time, you know, Dawkins is getting a little ticked off. And he goes, well, no one knows. I told you, no one knows. And nobody knows. So right there, nobody knows. Okay. So, you know, you can believe what you want to believe. So something, somewhere, somehow, this thing got jump-started by something or someone. And this is where it gets into the esoteric. This is where it gets into supernatural stuff. This is really my wheelhouse. So, you know, we can have a five-hour discussion on that. And, of course, we don't have time for that. But I find it interesting that that the, the two paradigms one, one can take is that all this just evolved over millions, billions of years of mindless evolution. But that immediately begs the question, if there's no reproduction system, well, how is that going to work? In other words, if a human being, no matter how primitive, whether it's Lucy or Cro-Magnum or whatever, without a reproduction system, this thing isn't going forward. So how does all that work? And it's, it's, a very, it's a very interesting discussion, very complex discussion. And it gets into the idea of panspermia. You know, we're, we're reseeded here by a race of advanced extraterrestrials or extraterrestrials who are highly advanced, but that's circular reasoning because that begs the question, well, where do they come from? And that's the reasoning that Dawkins uses. He says, well, I suppose it could have happened something like this. And he goes, and Dawkins is a great guy. I really like him. Real smart guy, but he doesn't know either. And it's circular reasoning when he states on the record with Ben Stein, well, you know, and, and a, a group of extraterrestrials who had to evolve by some sort of Darwinian process, stop. That circular reasoning. Where did where did they come from? You don't know. So you're just assuming that this race of extraterrestrials evolved in some fashion. But we still don't have we still don't have the chicken. You know, where did all this stuff start? And we and nobody knows. And I mean, I get that. And that's one of the great mysteries of of life. And and you know, I have my particular worldview, and those of you who are watching, you have your worldview. And at some point, maybe we'll figure out where we are and what's going on. Well, I, th I think we've got some very interesting historical texts that kind of give us some answers to that. Uh, but I, I just wanted to kind of like just ask about these uh, mounds in the Ohio Valley um, that that you discuss in the on the trail of, of the Nephilim, because I think that's kind of fascinating for because a lot of North Americans probably don't know about the significance of these mounds. You know, people maybe assume the Indians built them, but uh, you believe that the Nephilim built them and that the Nephilim came over from the Levant yes. to the Americas a couple of thousand years ago. So, yeah, just explain what, 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 who's behind these mounds. We were just there. And the Octagon Mound, which I believe 
yeah, you are showing the octagon and the great circle. Hold, just leave that up there. So with with your with my, I don't know whether you can see my well, my pointers on it. If you look at the the gateway between the circle and the octagon, look at the gateway right there. So now now draw back a straight line, and you'll see um, perpendicular to that, or not not perpendicular. What's the word I'm looking for? At the far end of a circle, you'll see it's kind of dark. And you'll see this, yeah, right there. Move it to your right a little bit. The, yeah, right there. There's a mound there. There's a viewing platform there. I was just there like three weeks ago. And when you stand there and you look through the gateway, now remember, all the trees that you see, none of those trees were there thousands of years ago. When you stand on that platform and you look at the gateway, what you get is the 18 and a half year metonic cycle, the lunar standstill. The, the, the moon, the lunar standstill, comes down and sits in the gateway. And here's the rub. We know about the 18 and a half year metonic cycle, but you go back three or 4,000 years ago, and I realize that modern day archaeologists put the octagon mound and the circle mound a much earlier date, you know, like maybe 1,000 years, 1,500 years ago. We don't. We put it far back, closer to three, 4,000 years ago. And when you sit there and when we realize the complexity of knowing what an 18 and a half year lunar cycle is, if you don't know it, so Mike, so you and I go down to the, uh, to the octagon mound and we're, or just, we're just beamed down 3,000 years ago someplace in Ohio. And, and you go, gee, you know, the moon seems to be doing different stuff every night. And I go, yeah, why don't we try to figure this out? So we, we set a, a pile of rocks on the ground and that's our viewing platform. And that's where we stand every night. And so we see the moon coming up over here to the left and it sets to the right. We put a stake here and a stake there. We have two stakes where it comes up and where it sets. Next night we go out and it's in a different place. We put another stake and another stake on the ground, always from our viewing platform. We do this for about 30 days. We're doing pretty good. We now have like 60 stakes in the ground. And then all of a sudden, a five-day rainstorm with cloud cover comes in, and you can't see the moon. we got to start all over again. Here's the rub. If we're doing this, Michael, we have no idea where we are in the 18-and-a-half-year lunar cycle. Not only that, we don't know it's an 18-and-a-half-year lunar cycle. For all we know, this thing repeats itself, oh, every year. No, it doesn't. It's an 18-and-a-half-year cycle. But we don't know that. So when we're doing the stakes in the ground, because that's all we have, right? Stakes 3,000 years ago, or rocks. And how do we crunch the data? How do we then crunch the data? How do we know, let's say we jump in in year six, but we don't know it's year six, okay? Or, or year nine. We don't know it's year nine because we don't know it's an 18 and a half year cycle. So we're just jumping in randomly and then trying to figure out what is this thing? How do you crunch the data? Where's, where's the buffalo hide that shows, and we put all the sticks up and we realize, wow, we were here before. There's where the moon was. And we saw that, you know, X amount of years ago. So we must be in this 18 and a half year metonic cycle. Native Americans didn't know about this. Europeans didn't know about this. It was given. The book, ancient book of Enoch, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, talks about a watcher coming down and giving this knowledge to mankind thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago. And so if Native Americans didn't do this, 
let me back up. If Native Americans did do this, where is it in their oral tradition? It's not there. No tribe ever talks about it in their oral tradition. There's no, there's no, nothing in the archaeological record. There's no surveying equipment. There's no long, long strings, nothing. It's not there. And modern day archaeologists will tell us that, well, they just did this because, so we just filmed, we, like I said, we were there three weeks ago. We had a surveyor, a world renowned surveyor. We had a mathematician, a university professor at the, at the collegiate level. And on film, we show her, Dottie Easley, we show Dottie drawing an octagon and how complex this is. But the octagon in, in Newark, Ohio, which you just showed, is a complex octagon. It's not an equal eight-sided octagon. And there are gateways, there are openings. Put, put that clip again, you can see it. If you can put that JPEG back up. So if you look, um, if you look at the joints, you really can't see it so much from this picture. But where the joints are, where the, where the, where the, where the sides of the octagon are, there's a gap. And those gaps, yeah, there's the gateway. Those gaps correspond to lunar alignments. So not only is it a complex octagon showing that, that the sides are unequal and two of the sides specifically are unequal, this thing encompasses 50 acres of land. 50 acres of land. How do you do that in the ancient world? And why? And, and they say well, the Hopewell did it. This, I have some information. I can't release it right now. But all I can tell you is we, um, we discovered something which was, which rewrites history. Of course, when, when, we, when we, we show this in the film, and, and it's been proven numerous times now, we, we've run it and run it and run it. So the calculations are real. It's no coincidence. But we show a connectivity to that site, to the octagon, circle mound, all that, to other places. And I'll just, that's all I can say, because that film won't come out till January, February and uh, next year. And I can't wait till it does come out. Because it, again, when we come out with this information, um, mainstream archaeologists and anthropologists who insist that Columbus was the first guy over here, you know, 1492, it's, it's such nonsense. I mean, when you're in America Stonehenge in New Hampshire, and I'm filming there, right? And I'm, I'm following Kelsey Stone with my little Osmo camera. And I'm going, well, Kelsey, what, what's this? He goes, well, that's the 28-day stone. Oh, really? Far out. And Kelsey tells me about the 28-day stone. Well, what's this? Well, this is the display case where we have all the rocks, all the stones with writing on them that we found in, on the site. Okay, that's pretty cool. What's that one say? And he goes... Oh, that's a dedication stone to Baal of the Canaanites in dedication. <laughs> and, and you hear this long silence. And I go, what did you just say? And he goes, to Baal of the Canaanites in dedication. It's written in Iberian Punic. It sat buried under the earth in a collapsed chamber for who knows how long, millennia, at least a thousand years. And they discovered it and they realized what's well, writing they put it in the museum. No one knew what it meant. No one could decipher it. And Dr. Barry Fell from Harvard, Harvard 
came up, he heard about it, saw it and said, that looks like Iberian Punic. I think I can translate it to Battle of the Canaanites in dedication. Why I almost fall over, this is my wheelhouse. The Canaanites is an umbrella for the Nephilim tribes. The Canaanites are an umbrella for this, for being on the trail of the Nephilim. Let me see if I can find the bow stone here. And I know I can. You know, it's always good to go to the table of contents because then you can actually find things. Um, give me a second. No, that's okay. So uh, with uh, the connection to the Canaanites building or being associated with the, with the mounds, do you think if the mounds are excavated that you would find the remains of these Canaanites and that they would be giants? Well, they already did that. Ab absolutely. I mean, the, the short answer, it, this makes a great paperweight on your desk. It's, it's like really thick. It's, um, it's very difficult to, um, to, to wield. So you know, that's all the American Stonehenge stuff. Wow, where is the, yeah, the Iberian Punic. Hold on, let me, it's got to be here somewhere. Huh. Well, while you're looking for that, maybe we can go to one of the other mounds, because I wanted you to talk a little bit about the Serpent Mound as well, um, because that looks like you know, there's something very interesting there. Uh, we've got the picture for that as well. Um, so yeah, there's the serpent mound, and it's like, well, what what in the world is going on there? Well, the serpent mound is is absolutely incredible because, um, eh, oh, there it goes, three twenty nine. Because again, the serpent mound, and I wrote a paper on this, um, showing that um, that the serpent mound. Is actually shows the serpent, and that serpent is in the act of swallowing an egg. If you look at the head, the mouth is open like this, and in front of that is an egg. So there's a, it's funny how different people have look at that iconography, and depending on their worldview, well, the serpent denotes wisdom. Okay, that's one way of looking at it, but there's also another way of looking at it. So the serpent is giving birth with this egg to wisdom for humankind. There's also another way of looking at it, that the serpent is a really nasty entity, and the serpent is in the act of trying to destroy the egg, which leads us back to an ancient prophetic text um, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which says that there's going to be a seed war between the serpent, the dragon, between the offspring, the seed of the, of this, of the dragon, and the offspring, the seed of the woman. That's that's an ancient prophetic text. So what we see, in my opinion, uh, on the in in Ohio, where the Great Serpent Mound is, and you can only see it from the air. When you're there walking next to it, you don't know what you're looking at. But the moment you pop up a couple hundred feet with the drone, bam, the whole thing comes into view. And that serpent's mouth is like this. There are other serpent mounds found in the Americas. With, with, it's always the same iconography. Serpent mouth wide open. In front of the serpent is an egg. And this goes back to this ancient prophetic text, which tells us that the seed, the offspring of the dragon, the snake, the serpent, will be at war with the offspring of the woman. It's a profound statement, which is thousands of years old. Thousands of years old. And to see it um, 
in living color, as it were, uh, on uh, on on the 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 cliffside of Ohio in America. It's like what? What is this? And so I wrote a paper on this, the Serpent Mound, a new paradigm. We also had quoted from Chief uh, Wallace, who was chief of the um, of the Shawnee, who basically stated on the record years ago when I wrote the book that the Shawnee had nothing to do with this. The Shawnee took care of it, but we did not build it. At that Serpent Mound, nine footers were found in in one of the tumulus, in one of the in one of the small burial mounds that were there. Later on come up to 2022, 2021, 22, the present day, Wallace, Chief Wallace has redacted that statement and said, oh yeah, the Shawnee built. Well, which is it? I mean, if, if you built it, then how did you do this? How did you compact the earth? And it's, the whole thing collapses of its own weight when, when, we, when we drill into it just a little bit. When we start looking at the mounds and the amount of earth that is required to build some of these sites. For instance, when you go to Fort Ancient, which is 3.5 miles of continuous earthen walls, which creates the site, Fort Ancient, it's aligned to the 18 and a half year lunar cycle. There were burials there. It's very, very ancient. So if you were to deconstruct the three and a half miles of continuous earthen walls, and some of these, some of these walls are well over 20 feet high. So you deconstruct the earth, and you put them in dump trucks, and you park the dump trucks bumper to bumper, end to end, and you just you line up all those dump trucks. Take a guess on how many miles of dump trucks you have. You have 200 miles of dump trucks. 200 miles of dump trucks. And we're supposed to believe that Amerindians, Native Americans, use clam shell hoes primitive tools and carried the dirt on their backs, I'm not buying that for a New York minute. And if you believe that, I got a nice bridge I want to sell you. Just joking. But that's just one mound. There were 10,000 mounds in Ohio. There were when Squire and Davis came in and started doing surveying. So we're looking at a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. There's no doubt about this. If, Native, if Amerindians built it, why is it in their oral tradition. We don't hear a word about it. Nobody talked. And these are hunter-gatherers, with all due respect to First Nation people. And they are the First Nation, in my opinion, that are here of humans. But there's something else that's here before them. And when they come into these sites, when the first white men came into Ohio, to the Great Circle and the Octagon Mountain, they asked the, the, the natives, they said, who built this? Now, this is in the record. And, and they said, well, we don't know. We're sure when we got here. All this has been, been, been twisted when Cyrus Thomas gets control of a narrative and says, oh, this is what happened. And this is what's taught in archaeological. If you want to become an archaeologist, this is what you parrot back to your professor. That Native Americans built all these edifices. They just forgot that they had done so. Yeah, it sounds uh, far-fetched. But I want to get to this uh, pre-flood civilization now, because I think that's that's the key. I mean, there were events that happened there in terms of uh, the existence of giants, the role of uh, extraterrestrials that created a civilization that flourished for many thousands of years. And then there was this flood event and everything was destroyed. But we have some historical texts that, that talk about that. 
So uh, you, you mentioned the Book of Enoch is one, uh, but there's also Sumerian texts, the mm -hmm. Sumerian texts. So you want to talk a little bit about what role the Sumerian cuneiform texts play in, in telling us about this pre-flood civilization, giants, extraterrestrials, and so forth. Well, the, the Anunnaki is what you're referring to, obviously. And in my opinion, the Anunnaki are, well, let, let, me, let me back up. Anything that is off planet that comes here from any other place, whether it's interdimensional, extradimensional, extraterrestrial, is by, by definition an alien. I mean, it just is, because you don't, if you don't originate here, then you don't originate here. So you're coming from someplace else and arriving here. So these entities in the Anunnaki are, in my opinion, it's, you find exactly, it's verbatim. The Book of Enoch, and, and you take the Anunnaki and the Book of Enoch, and they're, they're married together. They're joined at the hip, absolutely joined at the hip. And we don't know how far back Enoch goes. Um, we don't. We don't know how far back, you know, the oral tradition of Enoch goes. But they're, they're doing the same thing. They're contaminating the genome. Um, they're mixing the seeds. They're creating hybrids. They're creating giants. And it's, this, it's the same deal that happens in, in Sumer that, that is happening, you know, much, much later on. We see like, you know, in the antediluvian world, um, that everything is destroyed. Um, Sacsayhuaman, Machu Picchu, I believe these are all antediluvian, the Great Pyramid of Giza. And then you see after the flood, they don't have the same technique. In other words, Sacsayhuaman, what we see in Egypt, this, it's the same stonework, but it goes away. There's some kind of a flood, and then when, when the Egyptians show up and they start recreating, it's not the same stonework. It's, it's not the same level. Of, it's not the same technique. It's not the same level of perfection, um, of workmanship, just like we see in Peru. It's not the same. And then the whole thing shifts. Everything shifts. And we go from pristine, seamless stonework, which is inhuman when you look at it. It's like, how did they do that? No one knows. No, I mean, really, nobody knows. And don't give me the nonsense about the Inca with the copper chisels, because we show in a film which will be released probably by uh, early October, Out of Place Artifacts, we show um, some of the stones at Sacsayhuaman, and we have a gentleman with a copper chisel and a, and a block of andesite, and he goes, bam, 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 seven times he hits the stone with a hammer, and he shows you the chisel. The chisel's completely dull, flat. It was sharp like this. After he shows it, it's like this. It's like there's nothing. It's just completely flat. And and the andesite stone doesn't have a mark on it. So if a copper chisel can't cut the andesite stone at Saksibaman, Oyotintambo, Machu Picchu, and other sites, then don't tell me that the Inca did this because they didn't. Your nose is growing. Something else is happening. So it goes from the pristine stonework that we see, and it shifts into the megalithic where we see these huge dolmens and, 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 the, and the megalithic sites are all over the place. Menga, Spain, the largest dolmen, and we film there uh, at Menga, Spain. And then from the megalithic, it shifts again, and it goes to dirt. And then we get the mound builders. Silbury Hill is a perfect example of that. The megaliths that we see in Stonehenge, England, the, the 80,000 standing stones in Karnak, France, they're there. Somebody's doing something. Why wake up on a Monday morning when I get another thousand stones to put up here before uh, next Saturday? Let's get to it, man. I mean, where, where did, why are they doing this? 
For what reason? And we were there with um, Howard Crowhurst. And, you know, again, certain segments of, of Karnak are aligned to the 18 and a half year metonic cycle. It just goes on and on. So it goes from pristine stonework to the standing stones, and then it goes to dirt. And that's when it comes over here. We get the dirt. We don't get the megaliths here. We don't get the, there's a couple of them in New York. There's, we get the bow stone. We get America Stonehenge. And then America Stonehenge, they just vanish, completely gone. And then we come into the mounds, Silbury Hill in England and the mound structure. So there's this diaspora of what we believe are giants and, and other tribes coming from the Levant, coming from the Middle East, settling in Paracas because we've proven that with the DNA. I mean, you know, how many how many times do we have to do this before some academia goes, you know, you're on with something here, guys. I mean, all the samples were contaminated. No, our protocols were were stellar. We had lab suits on. We changed our lab suits. Every skull that we did, we went out of the room, changed the suits, blew each other off with compressed air, went back in. We had masks, gloves, hairnets, full on lab suits. And then we took fresh DNA and immediately that was bagged and tagged. Come on, guys. You know, and we show that it's coming from the Middle East. So what we say is that there was a diaspora of these of these hybrid entities that originated in the Middle East. And, and, and basically, they definitely go westward. There's no doubt about that. But some of them may have gone down the Red Sea and out through the Pacific because we, we seem to have a trail there and they wind up in Paracas. The ones that are over here, red haired, six fingered, eight, nine, 10, 12 feet. I mean, look at Goliath from, from the biblical narrative. I mean, Goliath is at least 12 feet tall, at least 12 feet tall. I mean, what are we looking at here? What's he doing there? You know, what, what are we looking at? That's not that far, you know, far back. And we know from Amer the Amerindians, it's not far back from them. We know from Sarah Winnemucca that, she, that the, the Paiutes warred up against the red-haired six-fingered giants, drove them all into a cave, and then set the thing on fire and shot them all as they came, and, and that was the end of them. But they're also out here on Catalina Island as our book, On the Trail of a Nephilim. I mean, it, it shows that. They were out here on Catalina Island. And, and our work, we discovered, I discovered the photograph, and we had um, people examine the photograph, technicians, and then figure out the height of this thing. So, you know, with the, with the Anunnaki, that to me is just these entities, these watchers that the Book of Enoch talks about. It's the same deal. And they come down, they give us technology, they start messing with the genome, the rest is history. Yes, so the, there's many Sumerian texts that that show these giant uh, godlike beings, the Anunnaki, uh, next to humans. All right, so here's a image uh, showing the uh, sun god Shamesh, and this is Sumerian, and many Sumerian texts show these giant godlike beings, Shamesh, others like Enki, Enlil, Marduk, Ninhusag, that were that were worshipped in in ancient times. And the, the question is, these beings, uh, they seem to have uh, their different city-states, they had their different fiefdoms, and they were often fighting against each other. So, you know, the, the question is, uh, were the Anunnaki uh, really the creators of these giants? And were these giants um, kind of like uniformly evil, benevolent, or, or are they a mixed bag? 
could be a mixed bag because there's a quid pro quo. They, when they show up, they and they do this over here. Uh, look at Quetzalcoatl. Knowledge is passed down, just like the Book of Enoch tells us. So these entities show up. They dazzle us with technology. They give us what seems to be healing arts or arch, you know, um, architectural uh, ability. Just they, they give us knowledge. Enoch talks about it. Um, the Sumerian texts talk about it. It's always the same thing. What's the end game? What do they want? They want to be worshipped. They want to be worshipped. And that we see this repeated over and over and over again. They want the worship. And you have to ask yourself and go, well, why, you know, why are these, what's going on here? But it, it's the same, it's the same deal until Moses and Aaron show up thousands of years afterwards. I mean, the Anunnaki are here. They're doing their stuff. There are city-states, and it's all wiped out in the flood. You know, and it's all, it's all gone. And then the whole thing starts up again. And then you get these two guys, Moses and Aaron, who show up in Egypt. What most people don't realize, there's a full-blown occult paradigm in operation in Egypt when Moses and Aaron show up. I mean, well, you want before to we get there, supernatural stuff. So be, before we get to Moses and Aaron, uh, what I'd like to kind of like get you, because you, you said something very interesting, that uh, that these Anunnaki wanted to be worshipped. But when we go to the foundational texts like the uh, Enuma Elish and the Atrahasis, it's very clear that the Anunnaki created these different human bodies. You know, some of those would have been giants because they wanted workers they wanted workers to mine the gold, mine the precious resources, and um, and and yeah, they wanted absolute loyalty. That apparently, you know, this this one of these beings, Enlil and his offshoots, just wanted absolute loyalty. So yeah, worship was a part of that. Uh, but but another one, another one of the Anunnaki, Enki, Enki, he apparently seemed to be more of a free thinker. He wanted the humans to be intelligent, free thinking, and think for themselves. So that was that seemed to be the conflict. So, yeah, I just wanted you to kind of dig a little bit into the dynamics of what the Sumerian texts tell us about the Anunnaki, how they had different philosophies about how humans and giants would be exploited, and, you know, th this kind of idea of free thinking, wise humans, backed by, say, the Enki faction, and these worshipping kind of like warlike uh, humans and giants uh, that are supported by the Enlil faction. Well, and again, all we have is, is what the Sumerian clay tablets show us. I mean, which is, which is astounding when you think about it, just from a, the aspect of an archaeological record. I'm still wading through that in the sense that, you know, I can't say definitively this led to this and this led to that. What I do find interesting is the parallel between what we see in the Sumerian texts and what we see in Enoch. And we know that it's a mix, it's like, like the Sumerian text. It seems to be a mixed bag, to use your phrase. It seems, because even in Enoch, it seems to be this mixed bag. But, you know, there, there are some entities that show up and want, like you just said, complete loyalty. Others are different. And yet, I think from my, from my viewpoint, from what I know right now, the overarching theme of these guys seems to be control. That, that they're worship and control. That's ultimately what, what they're after. So 
they'll give knowledge, they'll dispense certain things out, you know, where are they getting at from, right? But they'll do that and they'll dazzle humans. And they're also on both sides of the aisle, obsessed with creating a hybrid. They're obsessed with that. I think we can agree on that. They're obsessed with creating some sort of a hybrid entity, the mixing of the seed, which goes back to ancient prophetic texts, the seed of the dragon, seed of the woman. Yeah, that uh, effort to create hybrids, especially in ancient times, I, I just wanted to raise a theory, is that that's because the Anunnaki themselves uh, could not actually Reproduce. inhabit the earth because you know they come from another solar system, their genetics are different, their need for atmosphere, you know, the atmospheric content is different. So what they did was they created these avatar bodies. And, and, and my theory is that th these avatar bodies ranged in height, you know, from 50 feet to like six feet, and that the Anunnaki, they would just transfer their consciousness uh, to one of these avatar bodies. And so you would have an Anunnaki lord like Enlil uh, who would transfer his consciousness into, say, a 50-foot giant. And and he would just kind of lord it over the humans. So yeah, what do you think of that theory that uh, the Anunnaki created these hybrid bodies and these different giants because they they wanted avatars for their consciousness to be transferred, and that they preserved these bodies, which is why they have you know like the mounds and the and and, and different secret places where they have stasis chambers with these giants perfectly preserved because these are avatar bodies for the Anunnaki. The avatar bodies, and I'm not, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. We're seeing the same thing in ufology today. In my opinion, the greys are avatars. The, the greys are avatars. They are constructs. So these other entities can use their bodies to manifest in this dimension, to your point. It's very similar. I mean, you know, what's what are we really looking at? Pull back the curtain because the greys, in my opinion, are, are not, they are, they are suits, they're meat suits, they're avatars. And we've heard this from experiences from people on board the ships. Um, I think one, one guy we can both look at is Whitley Schreiber when he's aboard the ship and he opens up the drawer and there are the greys stacked like cordwood. What are they doing in there? Why are they just stacked up like this? So to your point with avatars, I agree. And when you say transfer consciousness, that's an interesting concept. They are possessing the avatar. They are coming in and possessing the avatar. A person, I'll throw you a curveball, but a person who was demonically possessed, full on, full on possession, all right? That's a whole different deal than Madame Blavatsky going into a room and, and writing, you know, books in four or five days. She's partially possessed, automatic writing. The entity has come into her and is moving her hand you know, with the pen, is writing. So she's not full on, it's not full on possession, it's partial possession. But you get someone who's literally fully possessed by these entities. And that that consciousness is now in the human body. I mean, I've talked to, to people, experiencers, that have let stuff in, and then they want to get it out, because it's living inside them, and they can't get it out. You know, and they're, it's like talking to them and doing stuff, very alarming. And some of what we do on some occasions is to help people get rid of the guy inside of them that they no longer want to have in there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, 
I think we can agree on this. What we're looking at is something that's very complex, very complex. And the fact that all we've got are, you know, a limited amount of knowledge. And, and you have to admit something to my point earlier that the Anunnaki, they just leave the scene and they don't come back. Now, people would argue that and say, well, they're coming back now. Okay, fine, I'm fine, but they're jumping. Though, just like every other culture that I've already mentioned, they just seem to just vanish. They just kind of go away, and then the whole thing just kind of restarts or jumpstarts or takes a different turn. Um, and we see this. It's a global deal. So, you know, the Anunnaki are there. They've got knowledge. They're dispensing that to, to humans. Some of them want to be worshipped. Others are more benevolent, let's say, at least appear to be so. But we don't have all the answers. I mean, you know, don't you wish you could go back and, and spend a month with the Anunnaki? I mean, and, you know, with, with the cameras and roll the thing. I mean, I'd give anything. Well, maybe not anything, but I would like to see that. But, of course, we can't. But what I find interesting is that this civilization doesn't really repeat itself. It, it morphs into something else. I would say, again, going to Moses and Aaron, when they finally get to Egypt, guess who's there, you know, and this whole pantheon of entities that want to be worshipped. So it's always about, in my opinion, it always goes back to being to being worshipped on some level. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, that, that, that worship of that loyalty seems to be a, a big factor in, in some of these uh, Anunnaki groups that, uh, you know, I, I think clearly there were some that put up, you know, that made that paramount. Like, I, I remember reading. Uh, there's, there's this. Uh, I think an Akkadian princess in Hedwana. She wrote her diaries, and it was, and for her, it was all about worship of Anana, the Inanna, the female goddess. The, yeah, the, the, yeah, like one of the one of the goddesses. And, yeah. and I was really curious to see that. Wow, you know, so back in the Akkadian Empire. This was the daughter of uh, Sargon, the Akkadian emperor, and and she put a premium on worshiping of uh, Inanna, and yeah. and so it was like, well, that's very interesting. So some of these gods or Anunnaki, they put a premium of being worshipped by their followers, whereas others, and apparently Enki, seemed to be one of those that wanted the uh, humans to be kind of like activated, maybe this kundalini awakening, and he wanted humans to you know, have that awakening of the serpent energies, right? So there seemed to be that tension and that whole Garden of Eden. You know, that's a, some people interpret that. I know there's an author, Matthew LaCroix, where he, he's the author of uh, The Stage of Time, and he, and he says, and I agree with him, that the Garden of Eden, uh, Garden of Eden is this kind of like, metaphor for this battle between those that were the worshippers of the of the serpent energies which was wisdom and those that were the worshippers of the eagle which is all about power and authority which was enlil so the two factions of the anunnaki there so yeah just your your kind of interpretation of the garden of eden actually being um this metaphor for this power battle between two different groups of Anunnaki or watchers battling over humanity? Uh, a friend of mine, Gary Stearman, I call him elder brother. Uh, we've discussed this uh, ad nauseum and continue to discuss it. Gary calls the Garden of Eden the dragon trap. 
calls it the dragon trap. So why does he call it the dragon trap? Why place, um, why create two human beings allegedly from the dust of the ground and then set them in this paradise knowing that this dragon creature is going to come and screw everything up? Why are you doing that? And that, Michael, is a three-hour conversation. And the problem with that is that's where we get the, the, the passage, that ancient prophetic text that I talked about a while back, that the seed of the dragon will be at war with the seed of the woman. That's, that's the entire, what we are watching right now, what we are living in, is that battle between the seed of the dragon and the seed of the woman. That's where we are in modernity. Um, that's what's happened in the ancient pasts. There's other ancient prophetic texts about 2,500 years ago that say that um, their seed will mingle with the seed of men. But there's a caveat to that. It says, seal up the words in this book, Daniel, till the time of the end. Now, this is 2,500 years ago. And then the entity who's dictating is to Daniel says, says this, that uh, he throws a what I call a supernatural clue, that men and women will run to and fro over the face of the earth and knowledge will increase. That's how you'll know it'll be the time of the end. Well, first of all, what do you mean the time of the end? Second of all, if we were to track 2,500 years ago, human progress, it's, it's flatlined. It's like this. Nothing changes in thousands of years. When Gutenberg shows up with the printing press, whoa, now the common man can read books for the first time in, in recorded history. You don't got a bunch of smelly people in a scriptorium writing everything down, hand copying with quill pens on vellum. That's, that's not happening. The printing press changes everything. So you get your first blip in this, this flat line. Well, when you get into the Industrial Revolution, everything picks up like this. And now in modernity, knowledge increases um, exponentially. And as I'm speaking, that ancient prophetic text 2,500 years ago, knowledge will increase, which is where we are, and mankind, men, will run to and fro over the face of the earth. As we are speaking, men and women are flying over the face of the earth. As we're speaking, that didn't happen until the advent of the airplane, until modernity. So it, it says this. Okay, that's, that's the time where this will happen. Their seed will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not cleave to them. Well, who are they? Who are they? It's not mankind. It's something else. And this brings us right into what we see in the modern-day abduction phenomena. Women are taken, hybrids are created with the women, ovum is taken from the women, sperm is taken from the men. We see the hybrids walking amongst us, Dr. David Jacobs. We see um, black-eyed kids. I mean, it's the whole, whole deal. But the women are taken, they're impregnated, third month, um, they're reabducted, the, the fetus is taken from them. Our new film on cattle mutilations, which we just finished, it's about to be released. Um, what we show in that is, which is very unsettling. When you take that, that, that child or that entity or that hybrid out of a woman's womb at three months, that hybrid entity can't live for too long. So we know that the cattle mutilations, bovine blood, this is a scientific fact, can be used in human transfusions. Bovine blood, the blood from cattle, can be used in human transfusions. And I believe 
that taking of the body parts from the cow, they are creating artificial wounds. So when that child or that entity is taken from that woman at the end of the first trimester, it's immediately placed in an artificial wound. And that's how it grows to maturity. Conjecture, but it's also based on talking with experiencers who have seen the rooms with the vats and the whole nine yards. Well, we know uh, from the book of Enoch that you, you do have this kind of war in the heavens, which is reflective of this war between different ET groups, positive and, and negative groups, and that that played a big role in the destruction of this uh, antediluvial world. Now, we are in a place in history where it seems that history is about to repeat itself. Are we in the midst of this battle between positive and negative extraterrestrials kind of like um, playing out in front of everybody uh, in, in, the, in, in some sort of um, deception or invasion? I mean, you talk about the coming great deception. So is, is this, do you believe that we are going to go through this history again? Before I answer that, let me ask you, how long are we going to go? Because I have a 3.30 Zoom, which is... Okay, okay. So, uh, well, let's, let's, let's do another 10 minutes. Okay, you got it. So let me okay. answer that. Um, and unfortunately, this is a three-hour conversation. I'd love to come back and really elaborate on that because, you know, 10 minutes is not going to do it justice. But the bottom line is this. We've got ancient prophetic text with a thread of prophecy that goes thousands of years it's the only book that we have like it. The Sumerian texts don't have a prophetic timeline. It's not there. It's not there. So while I respect the Sumerian texts, and there's a lot of clues there, there's no threat of prophecy that goes on for thousands of years. It's not there. And yet in, in the biblical prophetic narrative, we've got this thread of prophecy. So I don't care what you believe or what you don't believe. It doesn't matter to me. What matters is if somebody something, somebody is writing this outside of space-time as we know it and is calling out with great specificity certain events that happen. It's like, wait a minute, how do they know that? I mean, who, who's doing this? Where's the guy behind the curtain? I mean, you just kind of go, what am I looking at here? How is this possible? I'll just give you one, which is absolutely astounding when you think about it. And this is in the guidebook of the supernatural. This is a, a prophetic text. It talks about, in the latter days, I will regather you from the four corners of the earth. It's speaking about Israel. It's speaking about Israel. In the latter days, I will regather the nation of Israel from the four corners of the earth and reestablish them in their ancient homeland. That happened in 1948, which is profound. That nation... The Jews had been scattered through the four corners of the earth for almost 2,000 years. So the question is, that's just one. I mean, I could go, sit here all the rest of the afternoon and talk about the prophecies that are written there. I don't, again, I don't care what a person believes, but you have to, we just have to pause and look that there's no other book like it. I mean, the Hopi has some prophecy. I get that. Muslims have some prophecy. I get that. But when you look at the biblical prophetic narrative, it's got this whole thread of, and there are hundreds of them, which is, you know, you kind of scratch your head and going, you know, who's doing this? How do they know? You know, space and time is an illusion. 
when they show up, when so-called ET shows up, in my opinion, it will be after a nuclear event that happens on the planet. Why do I say that? Because we are now synced up together with the global satellite system and the internet. I don't know where you are right now, but you and I are communicating and your producer are all communicating via the internet. How does that work? You know, you go back 50 years and what we're doing is a pipe dream. It's, it's a Dick Tracy cartoon, yet it's here. So knowledge has increased. We have the ability to communicate on a global level. When the Fukushima reactor was hit by that tidal wave, everybody saw it live in real time. The grid was lit up. When COVID happened, the grid was lit up. You get a nuclear event on this planet anywhere. And right now, the fact that Ukraine and the Russians are saber-rattling, talking about tactical nukes, have, have you guys lost your collective minds? You know, you're drinking the Kool-Aid here, guys. Why are you saber-rattling like this? You get a nuclear event that happens somewhere on the planet, anywhere on the planet. The grid lights up. We all experience it. We all experience it together. This creates the greatest climate of fear that mankind has ever experienced collectively together. It's never happened in the history of the world, ever, 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 ever. And we're watching it in real time via the grid, via the internet. So that happens, that's when they show up. Okay, so I know right now we're having this unprecedented era in the United States, at least, of disclosure. UFOs are, are kind of like being studied. Multiple entities have been set up to investigate them. Congress is holding hearings. So it seems that something is about to happen. And, and I think it's something like what you've described, that, that the elite are aware of this, that the deep yeah. state are aware of this. And they're preparing, they're conditioning the public and I, and I think their goal is to make the public as fearful as possible. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, how, how do you be aware of this kind of like coming alien event? Aware, being aware without putting people into fear so that they can be manipulated? Well, when they come, they will tell us that they created all life on this planet. They genetically manipulated early man. They started the world's earliest civilizations that they started the world's religions. Now at this critical juncture in human history, they are back to usher mankind into a golden age. <clears throat> That's you what think that'll be a deception? Absolutely, because they're not who they are. Let me ask you this, Michael. I'll throw you, I'll throw you a hardball here. This is a this 101 mile an hour fastball right down the center. Here we go. Is it okay to abduct a five-year-old boy and implant him? No. Not certainly. There you go. You just you just stated my entire case. We've been talking for about an hour and a half here. That's it. When you boil it down to that, when you boil it down to that, that tells us exactly who it is we're dealing with. Well, well, that's my and question. Is is there more? Well, well, I from my research, I would say that there are positive groups and negative groups, and the, and you, David Jacobs, in in the threat. Right, Bud Hopkins. Right, they identified the negative groups, and and I think that's 
that's great because they, they exist absolutely real that is happening but there are also positive groups that operate under a kind of non-intervention non or non-interference principle that are watching and waiting and and you had this israeli professor haim eshed that talked about the galactic federation so right. yeah right. do you have a positive group kind of like in the book of enoch watching waiting preparing to take you know take action against the whatever the negatives are left i would respectfully disagree with the, with there's any good guys out there because um you know everybody i've ever talked to it's the same old thing i mean why not why not just show up and, and give us the cure to cancer and quit screwing around why 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 abduct the cattle and then just drop them or place them as chuck Sikowski would say place them back in the field which causes rippling effect of fear 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 it's always fear so if they're really good guys out there you know, why aren't they stopping some of this? We don't see that. We hear about it. You know, we hear about it. But this is part of, in my opinion, the great deception. Um, these are the same guys who came down in Enoch. They are the watchers. And they're back. And they have one, one mission. They will set up a global government. They will select or one, one hybrid will come from them who will be the ruler sort of the big cheese on the entire planet. Every, you and I will agree on this. When they show up, everything changes. Everything changes. The entire, everything as we know is out the window and it's a free for all. And like I said, they will say that they created all life on this planet. Mm -hmm. But in my particular paradigm, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Well, that's a profound statement to make. Can you back it up with anything? Well, yeah, I can. I can back it up with this thread of prophecy, hundreds of prophecies that go through. We're not talking about religion. We're not talking about statues and monks with funny haircuts and stained glass windows and processions and incense. We're not talking about that. We're talking about an experience with the guy who created everything and you just ask for it and then you get it. That's all we're talking about here. And most people go, <laughs> and, and they, they confuse religion with what this is. And what this is, is when a person comes across the line and asks, then they get it. And all of a sudden everything changes. My life changed 43 years ago and it's, it's ongoing. It's, you know, it's ongoing. I still get messages. Well, I, I do agree that something is coming. Something big something is, coming, is coming. And it's important for us to educate ourselves about that, to prepare to be as widely read as possible and to investigate and be discerning. So I think we agree on that. And do. Um, I, I look forward to talking to you again and going well, deeper into this. And so I know, uh, where, where do people go, LA, to find out about your work or if they want to get in contact or buy your books or watch your videos? Uh, LAMarzulli.net, LAMarzulli.net, 13 books, 27 films, something like that. The Catamutilation film is coming out. Number four in the series is on abductions, and that's an unbelievable film. We had sit down with four people who were taken, all at very early ages. And um, it's not for the faint of heart. And then, of course, the Catamutilation film, all dovetails together. LAMarzulli.net, and thank you for having me on. It's been a real hoot. Okay, well, thank you, LA. I look forward to talking in the future. Live Bye. long and prosper. You have been listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. 
Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com. Thank you.